the teachings of the apostles, or the catechism of the early church. Join Pastor Hook in today's teaching of the Didache. We are in the Didache, and um, today we're going to finish the way of life. If you'll remember, the Didache, well, here, let me show you a graphic. Um, the Didache has the way of life, which is at the top, and then the way of death, and then there's some catechesis about baptism, fasting, Eucharist, teachers, the Lord's Day, and bishops and deacons. So we are finishing up the way of life. If you'll remember, the, the early church was called the way, the hadas, and um, because when Jesus came and preached and lived among us, it wasn't just about, uh, you know, rules and regulations. Um, he was really giving humanity a way to live, to live a life that is complete and full and beautiful and glorious, which is called the kingdom. And in this, in this book, it's called The Way. And uh, I was thinking about it um, recently. I was thinking about how, I, I don't know if you've ever been an actor or an actress and had to memorize lines for a play, but as I look at this, this uh, document, it's probably, what, about 3,000 words, seven pages? It's not, um, it is not that difficult to believe that this would be something that would be memorized. Now, seven pages may seem like a lot to memorize to you. I mean, that's probably like, oh, I can't do it. Uh, if you've been an actor or an actress or mem memorized a monologue or a soliloquy or anything like that, it's not that long. Um, so it would, not be, it would not be difficult to imagine that this is something that a catechumen or a new believer in the faith uh, would have memorized. So, and that would have been awesome. They, you know, they could have had somebody teach you these things. You'd memorize it, uh, and then you re recite it from memory, and then perhaps um, you would have then been baptized. I mean, that certainly is something that's very believable that would have happened, uh, because in societies where there's not a uh, a written word, a, 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 a wide availability of written documents. Almost everything, and then at that point, has to be memorized. And so the stories of Jesus are memorized, and, and the Gospels of Jesus would have had to be memorized, and the letters of Paul would have been read, but some people might have memorized portions of those also. So it is not hard at all to think that this is something that would have been memorized. Um, it's funny, um, when I was a kid and in uh, seventh grade and, and started taking catechism classes at my Lutheran school, uh, we went through Luther's small catechism, and <clears throat> that actually is something that needs to be that was memorized. So the six parts of the catechism, uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, baptism, Lord's Supper, confession, absolution, all of that stuff contained in the catechism, um, you would you would memorize the answers to those. Um, and so that's, uh, it's not hard for me to imagine that this would be memorized. But the, the issue is, the goal is not to memorize this stuff. This is always a danger that you have with memorization, that you think that memorizing is the goal. So you start, you know, it's like you have to, it's like, you know, teaching to the test um, where you would, uh, say, here, memorize all this stuff, and then you're good to go. 
And more importantly than memorizing this stuff, of course, is understanding and digesting and living this stuff. That's much more important than memorization. And so a teacher that's teaching the catechism or teaching uh, the Didache or whatever, any time, you know, any type of Christian teaching, um, if they're teaching memorization and thinking that's the goal, uh, that is not quite yet the goal. The goal is teaching it, but also explaining it, understanding it, so it, it's inwardly digested and attached to the heart and the head and the brain and the body and all that sort of thing. So um, memorization is good, but memorization is subsidiary or secondary to understanding this material and what it means in your life. So in, in, there's two ways to go about living your life. One is that you could memorize all this stuff and then self-diagnose yourself when you get into a problem. It's like, oh, I remember from my memorization that the way of life is this and I'm going against that. Two, um, surrounding yourself with other Christians that if you're going astray, they would say, hey, remember when you memorize this uh, and you're not doing that right now. Um, the, there's many, many, many different ways of living the way of life, but the important thing isn't memorizing the way of life, but living the way of life. Maybe that's the best way to say this. So, but it would not be hard. The bottom line is it's not hard believing that this would be something that would be memorized. A little bit of coffee this morning. All right, so uh, so that's the, that's the outline. Uh, first, we went into love God, love others, then how to live, flee evil, lust, desires, honors, teachers, live in Christian community. And that's where we are right now in chapter four. Uh, and we're going to kind of finish up chapter four and see um, if we get into chapter five. So um, let us go ahead. We finished up in verse 11. Yesterday, we were talking about discipline, and then we talked about slavery we talked about how um, the Bible doesn't necessarily condone slavery, but it creates this system where we as Christians in the kingdom understand that the kingdom can be filled with slave owners and slaver, slaves um, in the classical definition of you know what slavery is, which actually, if you look at the history of the American slavery movement, they found great comfort in the Gospels, because even though they were slaves, they knew that they were free from their chains uh, of slavery in the kingdom, and that God had given them, that the Gospels of Jesus Christ gave them hope. And if you look at any group of people that, that where the Gospel richly dwelled within them, were those uh, African slaves that had come over into America and by some means had learned the gospel of Jesus Christ and became filled with hope because of, um, because of the words of Jesus, that they realized that slavery was, um, that you could be a slave and still be a, a follower of Jesus and in the kingdom and all that sort of thing. And then I would say, you know, I don't think I'm too bold in saying this, that the whole elimination of slavery in Western culture came about because of the gospels of Jesus Christ, because as as society looked at the words of the gospel, they realized that slavery was horrid. And, um, and so it is not surprising at all that the abolition of slavery came out of a deep religious yearning uh, to follow Jesus. It was that third use of the law. Yes, we've been saved. Yes, we're in the kingdom. Now, how do we live our life? And they started looking at how to live our life 
and they realized that slavery was not compatible with living your life in the kingdom. And so slavery was abolished. It took time. Slavery was a big ship that had to be turned, but eventually it is the Christian faith that abolished slavery. So, all right, that is, um, that was slavery. Now we're, um, now we're going to finish. There's three more verses in chapter four, which is going to be the end of the way of life. And then we go into the way of death uh, if we reach that today. Oh, it'd be fun to reach that today because tomorrow is Dia de los Muertos, which is Spanish for Day of the Dead, uh, which is Halloween. Uh, and then coming out of Halloween on Sunday is All Saints Sunday. Um, just, just a brief history of this, 30 seconds. Um, in the early church, they celebrated on November 1st, All Saints Day. And All Saints Day was a celebration of all the saints who had, uh, who had died uh, the previous year and, and you remembered them. It was All Saints Sunday. And then um, uh, so Halloween then was the night before All Saints Day where uh, there was, you know, in the dark ages of the 1500s and the 1600s, there was this thought that maybe uh, the day before All Saints Day, the, uh, the ghosts of the saints would rise up out of their graves and talk to people and, you know, do all kind of crazy things. It was one of those days that was just really spooky and scary. Um, and it was called All Hallows' Eve, uh, all Saints Day is this is the day of holiness and of the saints, but All Hallows Eve is the, you know, Hallowed be their name. The holy day, the holy evening, uh, is kind of how Halloween is trans translated. The holy evening, and it was very much a religious holiday, uh, and somehow here in the United States, Halloween has become a secular day of candy, uh, and dressing up in costumes and spooky goblins and all that sort of thing, which is absolutely a fun holiday for me. I've always loved Halloween. But uh, it is, its roots are in uh, the early church, uh, you know, particularly in the Dark Ages. And um, so I, I think instead of, there are some people think you shouldn't celebrate Halloween because it's a pagan holiday. And it's actually a Western Christianity Dark Ages holiday that instead of eliminating, maybe we should, you know, continue to retool and reform to give its original purpose and meaning, which is that there have been saints that have gone before us that we celebrate. And um, uh, there is nothing scriptural about the saints coming back to alive on the day before All Saints Day. So that part isn't true. But uh, the, you know, having a night of celebrating the life of the saints or an all-day uh, celebration of All Saints Day. I don't know. I think there's a way in there to try to redeem Halloween. Um, but it is, it, particularly as a kid, uh, growing up in Phoenix in the 60s, Halloween, we would take pillow cases and go, we'd start as soon as we were allowed to, and we'd start going from house to house to house. And I would literally get a whole pillowcase of candy. It might take four or five hours of, of, of Halloweening to get my pillowcase filled, but we were we were determined as kids 
to fill up those pillowcases with as much candy as we possibly could. It was one of the greatest days of the year. And then, of course, we'd separate the candy that we liked from the candy we did wouldn't like. We'd horse trade because some people liked candy, some people didn't love like candy, and then we would spend the next year gouging on candy. And just it was fun, just a fun holiday. All right, so let's go to uh, let's go to the Didache, chapter four, verse twelve. Thou shalt hate all hypocrisy and everything that is not pleasing to the Lord. Thou shalt not forsake the commandments of the Lord, but thou shalt keep what thou didst receive, adding nothing to it and taking nothing away. So, hypocrisy, of course, is saying one thing and doing another. Um, that is that is the definition of a hypocrisy of a hypocrite. Uh, do as I say, but not as I do. You hear that all the time. You might have someone that says, this is how you should live your life, and then they turn around and they don't live their life that way. And um, nobody should be that way. Um, so when I think of hypocrisy, the first people that come to my mind, of course, are, since we're in the election season, are politicians, where they say, this is how you should live your life, but then they don't necessarily abide by the same rules that we have to, you know, the, the rules that they create are not necessarily the rules that we abide by. Um, and I, I think that is wrong. Uh, that's being a hypocrite. And uh, God is not pleased by that. And nobody's pleased by that. Uh, and yet, there are so many rulers that live by that, that law. Um, I think one of the greatest things that could come out of the um, United States is to force every elected official to live by the rules that they themselves create. Um, no matter what those rules are, I think we should hold our elected officials accountable to the rules that they create. Now, whether or not they're going to do that or not um, is a hard thing because the more power that they get, the more that they can shield themselves from the rules that they make, um, the more power any organization gets, the more they can shield themselves from the rules that they make. It's like rules for thee, but not for me. Um, and uh, the Bible here, the Didache, completely speaks against that. So, And you sh we should hate that. We should hate hypocrisy and everything else that is not pleasing to the Lord. It's kind of summing up this way of life is that once you've learned this stuff, live it. Don't be a hypocrite. Um, you should not forsake the commandments of the Lord, but keep what you receive adding nothing to it and taking nothing away. So here is uh, in the uh, Didache, we saw in chapter basically two and three, a listing of things that you should do and the things that you shouldn't do. Uh, and they read, you know, read like a 10 commandments, but they weren't the commandments that, you know, the actual 10 commandments. But here it's saying, you know, keep the commandments of the Lord and don't add to them and don't take anything away. Now, that's interesting, too, is because um, if you're not going to add or take away from the commandments of the Lord, then are the commandments of the Lord always static? And as we've looked at the list of things here in the Didache, I think that this is a static list. I think that the things that are talked about in chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, are I don't think that they are going to change. They're pretty much universal over time. And so I think they're okay to, to say this is a good set of rules. The Ten Commandments, oh my goodness, that's a very, very small subset of the commandments shown here in the Didache. Are those worth following? Absolutely. Those, have, those Ten Commandments have guided Western culture 
um, for thousands of years. I mean, if you talk about the roots of Western culture, it does go back to Moses, right? And the Ten Commandments uh, and, and that being carried through, carried through Western society and Rome and all that sort of thing. So um, the Ten Commandments have been the guiding light of Western culture since they came down off of Mount Sinai. And um, so they shouldn't be taking, uh, we, should, we should honor them and we should respect them. There's a reason why even in uh, the United States, there, you will find courthouses that have the Ten Commandments on them. Because there's really nothing in the Ten Commandments that's uh, abrasive to our Western society ears. They are, they are the laws that we have tried to live by throughout history. So we should follow the Ten Commandments. We shouldn't just dis dismiss them. And you say, well, yeah, but, you know, oh, man, you know, have no other gods by, but me, that doesn't seem very, you know, egalitarian or it doesn't sound like that's what we want Western society to look like today. We should honor all gods or, you know, people don't want to have a god and all that sort of thing. But, but there, is, there is a deep truth into, we actually looked at this. Um, there was a book written by Tim Keller um, five, ten years ago called No Other Gods. And it looked, out how, it, looked out, it looked at how it is so important that in your life that you don't put gods in your life, that you have... You have one central thing in your life that will never fail, uh, and that would be God. And how important it is as you live your life that you put that first and foremost, and that you don't let other things become your God. Because you can elevate even good things in your life to be of such importance that they become gods in your life. And then when they fail you, and they will, then your whole entire life falls apart. So... Um, there is good justification, even in the Ten Commandments, for our living and for our health. And I've said this before, but the Ten Commandments are more about us and our health than they are about, you know, about anything else. If all of society lived by the Ten Commandments, we would do very, very, very well in this world. Um, you know, not, not kill, not steal, don't covet other people's stuff, honor father and mother, you know, remember a day of rest to keep it holy, uh, have no other gods. All these things are written for us and for our own benefit and our health and for the health of society. I mean, it's not like some random words that were just put on a page. I mean, they really truly are words that we should live by. So it's not bad that they're on a courthouse um, at all. And then, of course, we should not be hypocrites. If these are the words that we say we're going to live by, then we should live by them and everything else that is pleasing. Don't forsake the commandments. But keep what you receive, adding nothing and taking nothing away. And then one last verse here in chapter 4. In the congregation thou shalt confess thy transgressions, and thou shalt not betake thyself to prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. So this is the end of chapter 4 on the way of life. And it ends with this. In the congregation. What's a congregation? That's a community of people that have come together uh, to follow God, right? It's a community of believers that help sharpen themselves, that hold each other accountable. Uh, how do you know you can hold somebody accountable to these words? They've been baptized. Once they've been baptized, they're now in the kingdom and they're now accountable to a congregation for the acts that they do. 
which is why Constantine didn't become baptized uh, until late in life, you know, deathbed baptism. Um, now, he said he didn't want to be baptized because he wanted to, because he knew baptism forgave sins, and he wanted to make sure that all his sins had been completed in life before he got baptized. They could all be wiped out through baptism, which is a dangerous game to play, right? Because um, uh, what happens if you die that you, before you're baptized before, you know, to wipe out all those sins? So it is a dangerous game to play. Um, but I think, and I, and I could be wrong about this, but I think that Constantine didn't want to be baptized because he knew that as soon as he did, then he had to be accountable to the church for all the things that he was doing. And uh, maybe he didn't want to be accountable. He was emperor. He wanted to be accountable to no one but himself. And by being baptized, you're in the kingdom and you now, you now are at some level accountable to other Christians. Um, and that's what it says here in the Didache. In the congregation, confess your transgressions and do not take yourself to prayer with an evil con conscience. So uh, confess your sins to somebody. It doesn't have to be a priest. It doesn't have to be a pastor. Uh, it doesn't even have to be um, to somebody. But I will tell you this. There is, there is release of guilt and shame and a freedom that happens if you do confess a sin to someone who understands the gospel that tells you, yes, that was bad, but Jesus still forgives you for that sin. Um, now, we, we historically in the Christian church, that power was put in the power of the priesthood, the office of the keys from Matthew. Whatever you retain on earth is retained. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed. You know, whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. Um, that was in Matthew, and Jesus calls it the office of the keys. And he gives that to the church. And so the church has the ability to retain and forgive sins. And, and it is basically uh, the ability of the church to say, yeah, that is, that's a sin. You should forgive and make you know, reparation for that sin or no, that's not a sin. But in either case, Jesus still loves you. You're not out of the kingdom because of that sin. Uh, Jesus still loves you. He cares for you. He wants you to be in the kingdom. Uh, there is forgiveness of sins. When you confess, uh, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sin, God who is faithful and just will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 7 and 8. Um, that, is, uh, that is biblical, that we should confess our sins and that God who is faithful and just will forgive you from all your transgressions. Uh, and so just, just hold on to 1 John 1, 7 and 8. And confess your sins knowing that Jesus will forgive you when you confess your sins. Um, the worst thing in the world to do, and man, this is so careful, is do, when you confess your sins to someone who says, no, that sin is too great. Um, God cannot forgive that sin. Uh, that is horrific um, in the Christian faith because uh, when you confess your sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive you of those sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Look at what David did. David, King David, um, fell in love with Bathsheba, saw her bathing on, a, on the rooftop, fell in love with her, had a baby with her, had Bathsheba's husband killed, 
um, and, and hid it from everybody and didn't confess that sin to anybody. And it was killing him inside. And it took Nathan, the prophet, to come to David and tell his story about a man who had a little sheep uh, and someone who was powerful came and took away the little sheep. And David says, that's horrible. And Nathan looks at him and says, well, you are that man. Uh, and then the whole house of cards came crumbling down. And David realized that the whole community of Israel had known what he had done. Nathan knew what he did. The nation of Israel knew what he did. It was a horrible thing. And God's, I mean, how many commandments did he break? He committed adultery, right? He killed, he lied, he coveted. I mean, every commandment that you could possibly imagine was, was, was uh, committed by David of the Ten Commandments. Almost all of them were committed by David in the sin with Bathsheba. But once he confessed his sin, God forgave him, restored him to the, to the kingship of Israel, and he led, he led Israel as a great leader even after this horrific sin. So if, king, if God can do that with King David, he can do that with any sin. There is no sin so great that God can't redeem you from um, in this world. And it is helpful to be in a congregation of believers that when you confess that sin, they wrap their arms around you and they say, yeah, that was pretty bad. And God's not pleased by that, but God can forgive that sin. Now, do you have to go to another believer to have your sin forgiven? No. Because you, it says when you confess your sin, God who is faithful and just will cleanse your sin. So you can confess your sin to Jesus directly. You don't have to go through anybody else. There is this direct path to God. And that's okay. And pretty much in Western society today, we believe that that's the case, that you don't have to confess your sin to anybody else. But if you want verification that that sin is forgiven, then find a mature Christian who has experienced trouble and hardship and sin in their own life and have been forgiven by God in their own life and understand the nature of sin, that it's not a, a point of power that they would have over you, but it's a point of love and compassion and concern that they would have over you and confess that sin. And if they are a mature and loving Christian, they will forgive that. They will say, yes, Jesus can forgive that sin. Um, that is not an unforgivable sin. There is no unforgivable sin, except the sin against the Holy Spirit, which is totally different. If you're, out, if you're worried about sin, you haven't committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. The sin against the Holy Spirit is there is no more sin because there is no more God. There is no more Holy Spirit. I don't believe in this stuff. I renounce my baptism. I renounce the kingdom. That's the sin against the Holy Spirit. Um, no, if you're questioning anything as being a part of sin, then you are within the kingdom uh, and God forgives your sin. There is no sin. Uh, Romans 8, 38, right? There is no height, nor depth, nor power, nor principality, nor things past, nor things present, nor any other created thing that can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So um, there, is a, there, is a, there is a reason why we do confession and absolution. Uh, and that reason is that there is a freeing of the spirit when you confess your sins to God and he absolves those sins. And as I mentioned before, that's only one part of the gospel, the, you know, the forgiveness of sins. There's also um, the covering of shame by giving you the honor of being of the kingdom. There's also the power of God's spirit 
when we live in a world of fear, uh, all of those things are also manifestations of the gospel in our world. So confession, you know, confession of sin, forgiveness of sin is one manifestation of the gospel, but there's also honor, there's also power. All of that stuff uh, is, the tr- is the trifecta of the gospel in our life. So that's the way of life. And we finished that, chapter four. Uh, when we start again on Monday, uh, after we go through Halloween, we're gonna go into the way of death. We're gonna have a week of the way of death. Actually, it's, it's pretty much what we've already talked about in the way of life. It's just the, the polar opposite of it. It's a different way of talking about it. But the reason I think it's put in there is the way of death is because when you practice these things, yeah, it's not the way of life. Well, if it's not the way of life, then what is it? Well, it's the way of death. If you want to kill yourself, if you want to put a drip IV line of poison into your body that will eventually kill you, that's the way of death. And what does that look like? Well, we're going to start looking at that in chapter five when we meet together again on Monday. So I think we're going to end it here. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, thanks for uh, your life and your forgiveness and your grace. Thank you for your congregation uh, of our church here at Christ and Vale and all, all congregations. Help us to be congregations that's, that preach and speak and give your grace and love to our world around us so that we may live the way of life, the way of Jesus, the way. Be with us today and this weekend. Uh, until we meet again on Monday, keep us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.